Hello and welcome to LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. This is the podcast for you if you'd like to dip into the world of classical music. And we do some deep dive discussions into specific pieces here on LPO Offstage. And today we are here to talk about Gustav Holst's The Planets, a piece which you'll probably recognise even if you've never heard of it. To take me through the music, I'm joined today by harpist Rachel Masters, trumpet player Anne McInerney and cellist Francis Bucknell. Welcome back, Rachel, Anne and Francis. Hi. Thank you. Nice to see you again. Lovely to see you again too. Right, I'm going to ask the hard question first, get it out of the way. Do you have a favourite planet? This could be to listen to, planet in general or planet to play. Anne, I'll start with you. Absolutely. As a brass player, it has to be Mars. What a dramatic piece, especially as it opens the whole planet suite. It's absolutely stunning. It's rousing. It's scary. It offers everything, I think, Mars. And to play it, especially for the brass players, is fantastic. It's pretty full on and quite tiring, to be honest, but great to play. It's really lovely to drive out those rhythms. Amazing. You sell it well. I'll delve deeper into that in a moment. Rachel, your favourite planet? Well, you see, as a, as a harpist, I'm into a bit of subtlety, although my colleagues might disagree with me on that one. I mean, the trumpets and the brass, Mars, fantastic. But, you know, I can't compete with that. So there's Venus and I was just flicking through my part. Venus and there is the last one, Uranus, where there's some lovely delicate writing, some lovely effects when he really writes well for the harps and it sounds very ethereal and... Um, otherworldly. Good. Sounds good. Thank you very much. And Francis, how about for you? Well, the thing about this piece is that um, it's so beautifully written. I think any instrument can choose any number where they have something exciting or beautiful to play. Uh, There's wonderful cello solos and melodies in Venus. Mercury the Winged Messenger has very fast running passages. So yes, I'd choose Venus. I it's like nice that. Chilling, I like that you moment. went for you went for it. You went for it. Thank you. I won't hold you to it. You can change your mind throughout. I think what's really interesting about all of your answers is that you you spoke about how Holster's written for your instrument and sort of the task that you've been set for your particular voice. Francis, you spoke there about the cello. How does Holst write for your instrument? He uses the whole instrument, and for the date that it was written in novel ways. Uh, the Mars, the rhythm is collenio, where you tap the strings with the wood of your bow rather than the hair to accentuate the rhythm. He uses the whole compass of the instrument in, you know, the cello is a very lyrical instrument, as I'm sure you know. So he uses it in that way, but also in quite violent ways in Mars and peaceful ways in others. And we've had a, a podcast speaking about how we cherish our instruments. We, we, we love them. They're an <laughs> extension of us. So when you see an instruction like use the wooden side of the bow, do you change the bow that you would use if you see it come up on repertoire? Or how do you approach that when it's, it's not the usual way to play the instrument? Yes, I don't use an expensive <laughs> bow for that. 
Good to know. It's it's something I've always wanted. <laughs> Actually, sometimes sometimes if you, you could keep a pencil behind your ear and use a pencil to Ooh. to the same effect. And Rachel, the harp, you've, you spoke about that ethereal sound, but actually Holst writes for the harp in very different ways in, in this piece. Yes, he does. I mean, in, in the first movement where five is the new four, you know, we're yes. playing the rhythmic for, I think, 26 bars it is. So there he uses us rhythmically. And then um, obviously he lets the sublime brass take over from there. I think what's always made an impression on me about this piece is that he writes very well for two harps. Some composers think, oh, we've got two harps, we'll just double one line. But Gustav had a lovely way of knowing how to interweave the harps to dovetail so you could make the most of pedal settings and the chromaticism. And the harps tend to work alternately. Occasionally we play together for volume, but on the whole, the first and the second harp part are complementary to one another, which gives you an opportunity to write some wonderful stuff. There's the rhythmic writing then, there's lots of quite complicated arpeggiandos. He uses quite a lot of repetitive ostinato figures for effect. He uses harmonics. He uses something called bisbigliando, which is a bit like, yes, it's a good word, isn't it? It's a little bit like a tremolo effect you get from the string players and you'll play notes very rapidly so that you get a a trembling effect. And it uses that a lot in Neptune, the beginning of Neptune. What sort Um, of sounds does that give from the harp? Are you using all your fingers on one string, if you like? Well, you're using all your fingers on strings that are very close together Uh. so it gives a trembling effect and hopefully a smooth sound if you do it badly it sounds like a bee's nest um (laughs) do you know i've just noticed something i've got my part here and in fact i was thinking five four mars but in actual fact neptune is in five as well that's also in five four And if you go in to the Bisbigliando writing at the beginning of Mars, where he has the two harps in different keys so that we can get round any chromatic difficulties with pedals very easily. And so pin back your luggles next time you're listening to the beginning of Neptune, a few bars in, and you'll hear you'll hear the harp in the distance with this sort of lovely trembling sound. It's it's very in this instance, pianissimo and very delicate and beautiful. Very, and very it gives good. this lovely mystic sound, which, of course, is, Neptune is, is all about, it. isn't yes. it? As uh, Rachel referred to the trumpets, I saw the arms go up in <laughs> in celebration there. Tell me about how Holst uses the trumpets in this piece. Well, Holst was a trombone player when he left, I think it was the Royal College he was at. He 
played trombone professionally. And so he has a great understanding about how to write for brass. And not just the trumpet writing, but across the whole brass section, he uses us very well. Not always, like I mentioned before in Mars, where we, we provide a great source of rhythm, but also he has much more gentle moments. And then he, of course, he uses the trombones as a lovely choir at one point. I think everybody will... Look out for that when they next listen to the planets. I mean, he writes extremely well. He has four trumpets, in fact, in this piece. It's a huge orchestra, four trumpets. So because particularly in Mars, where you have this relentless da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and he has us over two octaves, so you have to take it in turns because chop-wise, you know, our poor Mars, we can only do so much. <laughs> We're not marathon runners and <laughs> mostly sprinters, I think, although, you know, this is a bit of a marathon. So you can divide it up. Well, he has actually divided it up. So it's it's two and two. And so you have the and on the very bottom, which which is, is um, a fantastic feeling to play. It's much nicer to play the bottom part than the top part. <laughs> Oh, that's really interesting to hear. And really nice. I think he's catered for the horns, knowing that that would be quite a a task to do for such a long time. Yeah, well, he understands, you know, the stamina issues. I wish he'd understood the stamina issues in the heart department. (laughs) But you've got two of you, for goodness sake. He's sharing it. You just told us that. yeah, 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 but you're talking about your fragile chops. What about my fragile fingers? You know, I mean, good Lord. <laughs> well, get, I mean, it just goes to show... to pieces. <laughs> it goes to show that it is a big piece of work, isn't it? And it really takes us through all the varying sort of colours and thoughts and emotions behind the planets. When you play this piece, Francis, do you think of the actual planets or are you thinking of, like, for example, Mars, we've referenced a lot there, and um, it has the, the title, The Bringer of War. Are you thinking of a red planet? Are you thinking about marching into the war? Or are you thinking about something else? You're thinking about the beer at the end of the concert. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not, Rachel. Um, very interesting because I was just sort of doing a little bit of research Good. before talking to you lot, and... It was written before the days of space exploration. We'd, we'd sent nothing into space no. at that time. We didn't know so little about it compared to what we know now. And yet there is such a feel of remoteness and distance and tranquility in, in many parts of the work. And yet it was built on aspects of what the planets are deemed to represent through various legends and so forth. So... Somehow it is very applicable to what we do know and have discovered today. Interesting anecdote. My mother studied at Oxford with Imogen Holst, Uh Gustav's daughter. And I remember, I think probably when I first played the piece in in, in a youth orchestra, when I was really quite little, I think, mum said what an enormous effect its sudden increase in popularity had on Gustav Holst, how excited he was that people recognised it and enjoyed it and wanted to hear more of it. That's really beautiful because he was pushing the envelope at the time. It was the size of the orchestra, the style of the playing, the five is the new four. I like that reference there, Rachel. Yes, yes, Um, yes. Anne, when you play this piece, do you think of planets, the different balls that we see up in the solar system, or are you thinking of something else? Well, actually... My whole kind of view of the piece has changed considerably over the years. We all end up playing it at a relatively young age. 
I think it was probably 40 years ago that I first played this piece. I found it extremely exciting. I loved all the colours in it, but I didn't really think about the significance of it. It was only, we did a tour uh, which was called Live and Local. It was a tour which we did in 2013. I remember specifically in going to Liverpool, we had a huge screen behind us. The whole programme was sort of space-related. We played Short Ride in a Fast Machine and also Sprack Zarathustra. But with the planets, we had this sort of high-definition imagery from NASA and that was been oh. there was a huge screen behind and the reason I remember it in Liverpool because I could actually see this screen I was turning around and watching <laughs> it and that was f- fantastic it was fascinating to see the, the sort of planets up so close and related to the music so that really had an influence on how I viewed playing it, it was no longer just the notes and the mood it was also this imagery of the planets much more recently, one of the Orclab projects, Orclab is, is the work that we do in the disability centres, we used the planets as a project and wrote some music around that. And John Webb, the guy who is in charge of that, the workshop leader, was explaining to everybody the astrological significance. And of course, I then thought about that. And again, it makes me think of it in a different way. So as I grow older and become more sort of aware of what it what it actually represents, I do view it in a very different way. But I suppose it, it possibly doesn't change in any way how I play it. It's just an internal thing. Yes. Because I suppose when you're reading the music and you're putting the expression in and all the markings and trying to sort of achieve what the composer desires, you're producing that maybe subconsciously. And Rachel, what's in your mind when you play this piece? Are you thinking about the planets and the sound it almost has become the sound of space if you like or are you thinking of something else I think I'm traveling the solar system when I play it it does have that sort of space I think Holst he really scored here because it's a very inclusive title isn't it it's something that people are instantly going to relate to it's very programmatic and I'm pondering here I'm wondering if Apart from the fact that it's a great piece to play and it's well written and it sounds fantastic, for the listener, if you see something called the planets on a programme and you see Mars, Saturn, da-da-da, you can relate to that. You don't have to know anything about music. So you might think, OK, I'll give that a try. And you can use your own emotion and and imagination and go on your own individual journey and imagine whatever you like. And, you know, this music will take you there. So... It must have captured a lot of people's imaginations back then when, as Francis said, there was no space travel. And I think it still does. And you're you're spot on there in terms of sort of the, the movements and the names of the planets. But interestingly enough, I think sort of more into my adult years, when I was younger, it was introduced to me as the planets. But actually listening to it again and just thinking of, instead of Mars, thinking of the bringer of war. Instead of Venus thinking of the bringer of peace and so on, the winged messenger, the bringer of jollity, it actually, for me, I was able to leave the planets alone for a little bit and yes. sort of walk outside of that space. And I found that really interesting and a different listening experience, actually. Yes. And actually, now you come to mention it, they've all got subtitles, haven't they? They have. They have, yeah. Now, I wonder... I wonder who decided on those, whether it was... Uh, <laughs> Gustav, can I just have a word, please? You know, how did he come to 
Was he into astrology? I don't know. But I mean, he knew what he wanted, didn't he? He knew what he wanted to produce. Um, Saturn, the bringer of old age. I mean, gosh, that movement is, is really quite chilling. There's, it really gets to me. I mean, and so is old gosh, age. I feel, I, <laughs> gosh, I feel old when I play that piece. You know, it's, it, it, get, it gets to me too because we're a similar yeah. age. And yes, reality is striking. <laughs> yeah. You know, Mercury, the winged messenger, it, it is. It's fast and it's flowing and it's absolutely speeding along and he, he it's very evocative music it really is francis you were gonna add to that going back to what annie said about um performing in liverpool i did a stint in with the royal liverpool philharmonic before joining the london philharmonic and we recorded the planets there it's a huge orchestra much bigger orchestra than concert halls concert goers were used to in those days the stage was absolutely full, but of course it, you need a, an organ as well. The organ in Liverpool, the console, is one of these that rises out in, of the stage. And of course there wasn't space for it. I think it, it was on this occasion that the organist had to play the organ in the basement oh, wow. with a hard hat on <laughs> and a video link to the conductor so he knew what he was doing. <laughs> And we've noted here how he really did push the bar, be it the size of the orchestra, the measure counting in five. Do you think that was intentional to make a change in the music? And what do you think the reason was for Holst just pushing that bar a little bit? He had been around the same time, I think there was maybe about eight years of difference between him and Stravinsky. And so with pieces coming out such as The Rite of Spring... I think very much as a composer, he would have wanted to push the bar and to invent this kind of sound world that was maybe specific to England and bring out the qualities of what he felt the planets would be like, what space would be like. And he also, within this sound world, was introducing instruments, which I suspect people had very little knowledge of. The first time I played it, I'd never heard a bass oboe. I thought it was the most extraordinary thing I'd ever heard. Cor anglais, I think we're all very familiar with and think of it as the sort of deepest voice instrument of, of the oboe family. But wow, bass oboe opens up another sound quality altogether. And he also used the contrabassoon a lot. He was very good at picking moments to use them as a solo instrument, which brought a completely new texture to everything. It's really interesting listening to Anne talk about it in the context of other composers like Stravinsky. And that was written, what, 1913? Was that when it was first heard? I was just thinking, in as much as Holst was a British composer, he was writing this music just a few years, maybe a decade or so, after the public had been listening to Elgar's Symphony Number no. 1. For English music, it must have been a real trailblazing sound world that they wouldn't have heard before. And I believe it was written during the First World War. So there was a lot going on in the world. And maybe people were more open to change 
But the sound world that we hear here is so different from Vaughan Williams and Elgar, who were the noblemen of British music at that time. It must have been quite shocking. Absolutely so. And from a musical perspective, Rachel, playing this piece under different conductors, do you sometimes find that the conductors are trying to bring something different or ask something different of the orchestra? What sort of experiences have you had in their approaches to it? Well, of course, I always tell the conductors what to do, so that's not really a problem. <laughs> she really this does. This is how it goes. She, she really does. Um, I, I think, I think no, seriously, I think the most noticeable impact a conductor can have is the speed at which they conduct these different movements. Each movement has a character of its own, which you hope is going to come out whatever. Let's just look at the first page. Mars. Allegro. Well, that can cover a multitude of sins. <laughs> Allegro is a very flexible thing. So that can, you know, you can have up tempo or you can have a down tempo rendering of that. In all honesty, when a conductor comes to the LPO to conduct the planets, we all know it very well. Mm. So we're going to give it the necessary musicality, hopefully. So it is the aspect of tempo that changes everything because if you're pushed through something, you're constricted immediately in the way you can phrase things. So that's ha that has a huge change. I'm not saying faster or slower is better. I'm just saying it's different. Um, Francis, you're, you're giving a, a lovely smile there. What do you think about conductors' approaches? Depends on, on the moment. Um, I suspect we all have trouble with changing our sometimes very, very strong belief into how a piece should go to how somebody else would like it to go. And sometimes that needs a bit of effort, shall I say. But that is the whole essence of orchestral playing, isn't it? Because you... Yes, it is indeed. Uh, because, you know, you, you do your preparation at home, you know how the part goes, and then you come to the party, as it were, and you adapt to whatever it is you're being asked to do. The single most frustrating thing I find is that if somebody doesn't give the phrases space to breathe, if you're trying to turn a phrase and you're being pushed through it faster than you want to be, you can be stripped of any chance to play it musically. And I think that's particularly relevant to, you know, a lovely lyrical cello solo or a woodwind or a brass solo when you've got a lovely phrase and you're not able to give it the space that you think it needs. That can be hard. Before I sort of head into, we've got some really exciting features here for Series 6. Just lastly on the music and how advanced Holst was, the choral fade, for example, at the end of Neptune and thinking about how pop music fades out now or music that we, we hear. How does that fade happen live and how did Holst write for it, Francis? It's an incredible moment, an incredible end to a piece. And I think this is an, another reason why... It doesn't need any completion. It doesn't need another planet, whether you consider Pluto to be a planet or not. And there's slight problems in citing the chorus in the right place, not having the dishes being washed as you open the sound of crockery, being washed after the <laughs> interval when the chorus is trying to sing. You open the doors to hear the chorus, but you hear the dishes as well. I think it's just a beautiful and very novel particularly in that, that day in the 19-teens, 20s, to end the piece. You just drift off into space.
What's your favourite moment within this piece, Francis? That's very difficult to define. You might have to give me a moment. Uh, Let me I'll hear ha- what I'll the pass others it on. say. <laughs> and do you have a favourite moment? It could be to play or to hear or to experience, any of them. There's a few bars which really always touch my soul. And it's in Venus. And it's just a moment where there's an oboe solo. And it goes... But that is then mirrored by the cello. Yes, not a, yes, but not just the cello, <laughs> also the clarinet and the solo violin, Francis. Don't be so selfish. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the moment when the oboe does it primarily that I just love that. Mm. And then everybody else copies it. It's perfect. And Venus is the bringer of peace. So that uh, holds got it right again. Mm. Rachel, what's your favourite moment? That's really tricky. Um... I do like Neptune, actually, if, if it's going well. Mm. And if we've got a good sound going and if we're confident that the chorus is sorry, but he was so unkind writing that vocal line there. It's so hard. If anybody's ever done it, you know, just coming in at the end of a concert off stage to actually deliver that is a really, really big ask. So I would like to empathise with all those women who've done it because it's jolly difficult. It's much easier to play a full concert than to come on at the end and do something really hard. Yes. But I think it is, you know, we've talked about how it's amazing the way the music just dissolves into space. I think the whole movement is truly beautiful and it's got that lovely ethereal, otherworldly quality about it. And it's got some lovely harp writing as well. So I think if I... I would probably go with Neptune. Perfect. But it's a very difficult question to ask because I the whole thing about playing the whole of the planets as a harpist is there are two fantastic harp parts and it's the collaboration of the two instruments and it's the balancing of the sound and that goes through every movement. It's an absolute joy to play. Perfect answer. Thank you, Rachel. And Francis? Well, I'm trying to re- recall which movement this is in. Maybe it's... Anne or Rachel could help me. There's an organ glissando and a fortissimo cadence and you're suddenly left as if floating in space. Is it at the end of Saturn? Saturn? I can't remember. It's Saturn. It's the cataclysmic thing when That's right. possibly... It's the bring of old... Is it the bring... Oh, no, hang on. No, it's Uranus. Yeah, I've got That's it here. Right. It's, it, yes. 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 You're propelled into space and suddenly you've left the Earth behind and... You're floating. And there there follows some fantastically magical harmonics from the heart department. (laughs) (laughs) That's Well, look at that. Three totally different areas to listen out for when we next experience the planets. <laughs> well, here on Series 6, we have some special feature questions. They're not easy, I've got to tell you, but I will have to twist your arm to give me an answer because we've got to wrap up soon. So I started off asking you what was your favourite planet and you answered so wonderfully. But I also asked this on social media. 
What do you think was the most popular planet for the listeners? I think um, Mars is instantly recognisable. I think that that might be one of their choices. Nice. I'll take your on first the other answer. Hand, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, if I was to phone a friend, um, yes. I would wonder about Jupiter because it's got um, I vow to thee my country in it, um, which when you know the piece was written during the First World War becomes even more poignant. I think Jupiter is... Yeah, maybe J- Jupiter. I, I don't I'm going to take your first answer now. <laughs> I would have let you have well, two. I'll go, well, let me see, Francis. Just give me, call. just give me one word. What what planet would it be? Jupiter. Ah, you see. And Anne, Mars. Well, this is interesting because for the social media listeners, Jupiter indeed was number one. Yeah. Number two was Saturn, and number three was Mars. There you Ooh, go. Wow. You to apply that to your listening of the audience next time you perform it next year. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone that responded to that poll. It really is interesting to hear. And there is something for everybody in this piece. Thank you so much to you all. You really have given me great insight and shared so wonderfully about your experience with the planets. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Rachel Masters and McEnany and Francis Bucknell for a great exploration and deep dive into Holst's planets. And please do email offstage at lpo.org.uk with any questions that you have for anyone here on LPO Offstage, whether it's about favourite pre-concert rituals, tour eating spots or best drumsticks. We want to hear from you. That's offstage at LPO. .org.uk or you can message us on social media at London Philharmonic Orchestra. I can't wait for the next episode of LPO of Stage. I'll see you then. 